Technology just decides to give you a swift kick at the pants and remind you that it's the Lord that's in control. But we're here now. Uh, We've been going through the Gospel of John, and it's a joy to open God's Word again with you this evening. So if you please stand with me and open up the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 9 to 13. John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. And these verses read, There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. Enlightenment. What comes to your mind when you think of the word enlightenment? If you asked this question to a Buddhist, he'd probably tell you that enlightenment means achieving nirvana, which is either a really great 90s band or liberation from all earthly attachments and suffering. If you were to ask a Hindu, he might call it moksha, which is the freedom from an endless cycle of reincarnation and the absorbing of the self into the great oneness of all things, whatever that means. If you asked a historian, he might tell you about the period of the so-called Enlightenment in Europe, which denied the need for religion altogether, preferring the light of human reason. Enlightenment. This is something that humans crave. Even in the atheistic sense, enlightenment is sometimes seen as an almost spiritual awakening to something new, after a time spent in darkness. No one wants to feel as though they're stumbling around through the world with their eyes closed, stumbling around in the dark. No, you want to be assured that your eyes are open to truth. And Scripture isn't blind to this reality. And God speaks many times about enlightenment, but in his own way. This text is one of those times. Over and against whatever enlightenment the world may offer, God, speaking through the Apostle John, presents true enlightenment as coming through Jesus Christ and him alone. These five verses in John chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, are essentially a summary of the gospel message. First, the true light comes into the world at his incarnation. His presence on earth is enlightening and illuminating, revealing the depths of human sin and God's righteous anger towards sinners. But it also reveals the way to know God, to be his child, to be free from sin. Not exactly the kind of enlightenment that the world is looking for. And there are two, and only two, responses to this enlightenment. Rejection or reception. And first, the true light is rejected. The creator of the world walks among his creatures. But they don't recognize him. He goes to his own people, the nation of Israel, And even they don't receive him. 
Some commentators say that the first half of John, the first 12 chapters, deal with the rejection of Jesus. The true light is proving too enlightening for those who prefer to stay blind. But there's hope. Because we read that not everyone rejects the light. But there are those who receive him. There are those who believe in him. And those people, the people who receive the true light, become children of God. And why? Because God opens their eyes to see. And this is why Jesus Christ came to earth. To bring light to a dark world. To open blind eyes. To bring true enlightenment to miserable souls. And to make children of God out of those who believe in his message. What will be your response to the true light? Consider that in your hearts as we look at this text this evening. Verse 9 opens the text with these words. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens everyone. This comes after verses 6 to 8 where twice John the Baptist is described as merely a witness to the light. He pointed out the light, but he wasn't the light himself, as Thomas took us through last week. John is a mere lamp, but Jesus is the true light. In other words, to describe him would be the genuine light, the ultimate light who fully and perfectly reveals God to man. Jesus is distinct from other good lights, far above them. Yes, you can learn much from the lights of philosophy or from the light of the natural sciences. You can learn from great theologians and Bible teachers and preachers from the history of the church. But all of these things pale in comparison to the light of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 36, 9, David declares to God, In your light do we see light. Jesus, as the true light, illuminates all other lights and they submit to him. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. And if you don't know God, it doesn't matter how many other things that you do know. You're still in darkness. St. Augustine writes, Even our eyes are called lights. Nevertheless, unless either during the night a lamp is lighted or during the day the sun goes forth, these lights are open in vain. To know God, you need Jesus Christ, the true light. Jesus is distinct from false lights. Do you know, church, that Satan appears as an angel of light? There's a reason why falsehood looks so appealing. It imitates light. False religions, false ideologies try to offer what only Jesus can give, but they twist it. They have to, because they don't have the real deal. Think about the evils being praised in our culture right now and what they claim to offer. Abortion! It's the way to freedom. Transgender surgery. That's the way to feel peace about yourself. Liberal sexuality is the way to fulfillment, the way to joy. These things imitate light. But really they entrap people in darkness by feeding them false promises. And they can't deliver on those promises because only Jesus can give freedom, peace, fulfillment, joy. These false lights are really no lights at all. Jesus is the true light. He's the true light who comes into the world. The first few verses of John, John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, amazing verses, describe Jesus as the Word, who was in the beginning with the Father. 
the Word who is God Himself, the second person of the Holy Trinity. These verses describe a transcendent Jesus, a heavenly Jesus, a Jesus who is high above His creation. But here in verse 9, the language changes. The Word, the true light, comes into the world. The heavenly takes on the earthly. God comes to man. Verse 14 will go on to say that the word became flesh. It's providential, I think, that we're going through this text so close to Christmas. The incarnation is the divine Son of God entering his creation. Now, John isn't just trying to tell us that Jesus merely came and walked around on the, the ground, the physical ground, for a few years. That he did, he did do that. And the fact that God would do that is amazing in and of itself. But when John says that Jesus came into the world, he's referring specifically to the human world, the wicked human world that hates their creator. Jesus has been sent behind enemy lines, so to speak. Christmas story takes on a whole new tone when you realize that the human world was not waiting with eager expectation for the Savior to come. In fact, Jesus' life was in danger from the very start. People were already trying to kill him. But this is the beauty of divine love. Because why would God send his son into the world if the world hates him? Why would God do that? Because God so loved the world. God so loved the world. There was nothing great about the world that made Jesus want to pay it a visit. In fact, Jesus had every reason to destroy the world. But Jesus loved the world. And that's why he came. And as Jesus comes into the world, he enlightens everyone. Literally, he gives light to every man. What does this mean? Is this light the inward light of nature that comes from general revelation? Well, that was already there before Jesus came into the world. Well, maybe it's the light of salvation. Well, that can't be, because not all men are saved. And the text says that Jesus enlightens everyone, every man. What the word John uses for enlighten means to shed light upon, to make visible, to bring to light. Well, what's Jesus shedding light upon, you may be asking? You and me. If you're familiar with the musical or if you've read the book of Les Miserables, you're familiar with the main character, Jean Valjean. At the beginning of the story, he's a criminal and he's on parole after nearly 20 years in prison. He's a man who's filled with hatred because he feels as though the world has rejected him, treated him unfairly. But there's a bishop who shows him mercy. He welcomes Valjean into his home, feeds him, gives him a bed, treats him with nothing but kindness. And Valjean decides to repay the bishop's kindness by stealing his silver. Well, he gets caught. And the police bring him back to the, to the bishop. And in a moment of stunning compassion, the bishop forgives Valjean, lets him keep the silver that he stole. This is incredible mercy. But not long after, Valjean steals again, this time from a small boy. And immediately his conscience is so tormented that something within him breaks loose. And the book describes his experience like this. All return to him. His past life, his first offense, 
his external brutifying, his inward hardening, his return to freedom gladdened by so many plans of revenge, what happened at the bishops, the petty theft from the child, all this clearly appeared in the light unseen before. Looking at his life, it appeared horrible. At his soul, and it seemed dreadful. This is the moment that Valjean begins to understand redemption, but first he needed to be brought to a place where he could see his soul in all of its ugliness. He needed to be dragged into the light. And that's what Jesus does to you. He drags you into the light. He doesn't let you remain in the dark about your lost and miserable state, but he shows you your sin by bringing it out into the light. That's how much God has loved you. But humans, we are creatures who love the darkness. Jesus says that very thing in John chapter 3. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest what? His deeds be exposed. We don't want to be exposed. And so this enlightenment forces a distinction amongst humans. You must respond to the light. It's impossible to remain indifferent. There will be two kinds of people who respond to the light. Those who reject the light, those who hate the light because the light exposes them for what they are. Or you will come to the light and you will receive what the light has to offer. And the next four verses describe how these different responses played out in Jesus' own lifetime, how they continue to play out to this day. Look at verse 10. He, the true light, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Do you see the horrible irony in this verse? The creature doesn't recognize the creator. That's how far gone Humanity is, spiritually speaking. Sin has so blinded man that when God himself lived in our midst, not only did we not recognize him, but we killed him. If you listen to dialogues or debates between atheists and Christians, sometimes you'll hear atheists say something like this. If God will just show himself to me, I will believe. I don't need words written in the sky I don't need a vision. I don't need a dream. I just need something. Something to show me that he's there. And I'll serve him for the rest of my life. This isn't an uncommon sentiment amongst atheists. Many atheists don't have a problem with belief in God. They'll even admit to the strength of many arguments for God's existence. They just can't bring themselves to that place of belief. In fact, Just like you heard, they will say that they are open to believing if only God would just reveal himself. And the fact of the matter is, he did. The problem isn't that God hasn't revealed himself. We have that in abundance. The problem is the blinding power of sin. The world did not know him. Why? Because the world doesn't want to know him and the world is not able to know him. The world doesn't want to know him because men love darkness rather than the light. When something you love is threatened, you fight against the threat, right? 
And Jesus came to destroy everything that we hold dear, our sin. Just consider in your own heart. When you're confronted, when someone confronts you with something that you have done wrong, what's often the almost immediate response? Self-defense. Self-justification. Look at the rich young ruler. Jesus tells him, hey, you're missing something. You're missing something. You're not generous with your wealth. Sell all you have, give it all to the poor. And then come follow me. And how does the young ruler respond? He grieves. He grieves. Why? Because he couldn't part with his beloved riches. He loved his possessions more. Or for an even more extreme example, look at the men of of Ephesus in Acts 19. When Paul's preaching exposes their idolatry, they riot. The whole city tries to kill the Apostle Paul. And in the ultimate act of rebellion against their creator, men put Jesus to death on the cross because he exposed sin for what it was. Man doesn't want God. People can tell you all they want. I want to know God. I want to. That's not true. We don't want to. That's our fundamental human problem. That's at the root of every problem we experience. Humans don't want God. And it's not just a matter of desire. It's also a matter of ability. Listen to Paul's chilling words in Romans 8. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Jesus himself said in John 6, No man can, no man is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Sin blinds the eyes. Sin binds the will so that man doesn't want God and man cannot go to God. That's our problem. But that's just speaking about humanity in general. What about God's own people? What about Israel? Surely, the covenant people of God will recognize their creator. Surely, they will recognize their Messiah. Verse 11. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own received him with great fanfare. Welcome, Messiah! No. And those who were his own did not receive him. This is one of the saddest verses in Scripture. The phrase, what was his own, could also be translated as his own home. Jesus was coming home. Imagine being born into a family that doesn't want you. Perhaps you don't have to imagine it, if that's your experience. Jesus didn't have to imagine either. Not only did the world not recognize him, but his own people didn't receive him. There were times when his immediate family members thought that he was nuts. But he was born as an Israelite. His ministry was to Israel. Jesus was a Jewish man. They were his kinsmen, according to the flesh. He preached repentance to them. He healed their sick. He fed their hungry. He warned them of the coming judgment. He begged them to believe the gospel, to turn from their sin, to turn back to their God. Their own scriptures foretold his coming, and yet they responded just like the rest of the world, with hatred. This is best illustrated by the parable of the vine growers. In Matthew 21, And in a man plants a vineyard, hires men to tend it. When the time comes, he sends his servants to collect the harvest. But the vine growers beat them, stone them, and kill them. And they do this twice. Finally, this is what happens. 
He, the owner, sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Israel didn't want their Messiah. Listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah. This is God speaking. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. These words describe the rejection Jesus experienced to a T. I wonder how many times he would have thought about these words during his ministry. God spoke to his people through the prophets, and they killed the prophets. He sent his son, who said, Here am I! Here am I! I'm coming to you with open hands, ready to receive you into my love. And they killed him too. But as sad as it is, it's not surprising. This is what the scriptures pointed to. Isaiah, in another place, says that the servant of Yahweh would be despised, forsaken of men, oppressed, and afflicted. Daniel writes that the Messiah would be cut off and have nothing. Listen to what the prophet Zechariah says. Once again, God speaking. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, my associate, declares Yahweh of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. This is God commanding the sword to strike his own shepherd. Israel's rejection of the true light was the plan all along because by this very rejection, salvation would be brought to the whole world. That means there's hope because it means that not everyone rejected the Messiah. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. In a world full of rejection, there were those who received the true light, who listened to what he had to say. They believed his message, and to them God gave the right to become children of God. Now we need to break this verse down. First the phrase, children of God, needs some explanation. Because you're going to hear people say, well, wait a second, I thought that we were all children of God, every human. This is common. You'll hear this from people who say that they are spiritual but not religious. You'll hear this from Mormons who think that we are literally God's spirit children. Kind of weird. You'll even hear this from some Christians. But it's just not true. J. Gresham Machen, in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, says this, The plain fact is that this modern doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God formed no part whatever of Jesus' teaching. Listen to that. This idea that everyone is a child of God is a modern doctrine. It's not in Scripture. Jesus certainly never taught it. Now, yes, we can say that humans are God's children in the sense that he created us. And as Paul says in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. Yes. But the fact that God is our creator merely grants us the title of creature, not child. The word child that John uses here is an affectionate term, 
a familial term, never used in Scripture to describe unredeemed humans. No, John makes it quite clear. You become a child of God by an act of divine grace. Paul uses the language of adoption to describe a person's entrance into God's family. It should be evident by now that no one has the capability within themselves to become a child of God. God must give you that right. God must authorize it. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that all men are born children of wrath by nature. You don't have the right, you don't have the capability to change your nature. But Jesus does. It all depends on his grace. And when he makes you a child of God, there's nothing that can change that. So the question then becomes, well, how do I become a child of God? How can I be adopted into God's family? And John says it right there in verse 12. You must have faith in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the name here isn't just a label or a title, but it includes his character, his message, his whole person. You must receive and believe in the true light. What does that mean? That means that you receive his enlightenment about yourself. You agree with him that you're a sinner, a sinner who deserves God's judgment. It means you believe that he's the only way to salvation from that judgment. It means you repent, you turn from your sin. You turn to place your trust in Jesus, fully relying on him and on him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Does that describe you this evening? Have you been born again? That's the phrase that John will use in John chapter 3 a little later to describe how a person becomes a child of God. You are born again. And he takes great pains to show that this new birth is entirely supernatural. Don't look for the new birth in this world, says John. You won't find it. In verse 13, he says that the new birth is not of blood. In other words, no one is born a child of God. Don't think that just because you were born to Christian parents that you're automatically in the kingdom. Natural birth does not also produce spiritual birth. In John chapter 8, the Jewish authorities came to Jesus and they thought that because they were Abraham's descendants, that meant they had God's favor. But Jesus, and later Paul, reminds them that being Abraham's child means nothing if you don't also have Abraham's faith. Neither is the new birth of the will of the flesh. And what John is getting at here is that the new birth is not the result of natural human want or need, natural human desire. Being a child of God is not based on how you feel or on how Christianity meets your perceived needs. This is especially relevant in a culture that says that your identity is based around how you feel. A person may be tempted to say, well, I experience such deep emotion when I sing these songs or when I hear these sermons or when I go to these conferences or these spiritual retreats or when I pray, I must be a Christian but just because you get an emotional high does not mean that you have a new birth. Finally, the new birth is not of the will of man. Salvation happens because God takes the initiative, not man. Don't look for the new birth in yourself. You can't will your way into God's family. Now even this goes against human thinking in so many ways, doesn't it? 
You're taught that you can be anyone, that you can do anything, go wherever you want, with a little determination, a little ingenuity, a little elbow grease, a little hard work. If you just try hard enough, you can do it. False religions love to teach like that. That's their bread and butter. But this can even affect the way that Christians think in very subtle ways, right? I must believe. I've got to have faith. I need to serve at church. I need to go on that mission trip. I need to pray three times a day. I need to read my Bible all the time, learn theology. I need to raise my hands in worship. I need to lead a home group. If I check these boxes, if I cross my T's, if I dot my I's, that means I'm in God's family, right? And these are good things. Yes, you should do them. But they don't bring about the new birth. No, just says John. This is all of God. And that's a good thing. If it was up to me, I'd never become a child of God, and neither would you. The will of man is dead in sin. It can't bring about spiritual rebirth. You and I need God to act on our behalf, to remake our twisted souls. God needs to take the initiative because I can't. And praise be to God, he did. He sent his son, Jesus, the true light, into the world to make children of God out of those who believe in him. God acted on your behalf. He acted on my behalf. Jesus came to earth as a man for you. Jesus lived a perfect life in your place. He was placed on the cross instead of you. On that cross, he took God's wrath against your sin on himself. His blood was the price of your redemption. He procured the forgiveness that you so desperately needed. He rose again. He secured eternal life for you. He ascended. He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell you, to make you holy like him. He stands before the Father and prays for you. He will raise you up to eternal life. God does it all. What do you do? Yes, you must receive the true light. Yes, you must believe in his name. You must accept his enlightenment. You must trust that what he says is true. Yes, you must do those things. Those are really your actions. But even the ability to believe in him is given to you by God. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. That capability isn't in you. It's not in me, but it is in God, and he can give it to you. And again, that's a good thing. Because if anything in salvation, anything at all, were ultimately up to me, the whole thing would be in doubt, because I could mess it up. But it is all, 100% of God which means that you can have confidence in it. Are you a child of God? You may be asking, well, how can I be sure? How can I know that I'm a child of God? How can I know that I've received this adoption? Well, the answer depends. It depends on your response to the true light's enlightenment, whether you reject it or receive it. If you have, that means that God has acted. Have your eyes been opened by God to the depths of your sin in light of God's holiness? Have you seen your need 
for a Savior who can forgive your sins? Have your eyes been opened to this reality by God's grace? Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted him to be that Savior? Maybe you answer yes to these questions. But maybe you still doubt. There's still doubt in your heart. And you might say, well, yeah, I believe these things. But my faith is so weak sometimes. Well, brothers and sisters, your salvation doesn't rest on the strength of your faith. If you believe in the name of Jesus, God has given you the right to be his child. He's given you a new title that nothing, not even weak faith, can take away. It is God's will and desire that you be a part of his family. Think about that. God wants you to be in his family. And God doesn't change his mind about that. If weak faith is something that you struggle with, return to these verses often. God has made you his child. But on the other hand, if you are here this evening and you have rejected the true light, then the application is clear. You must be born again. You must turn from your sin. You must believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't delay. Now is the time. Don't turn away from what the light has revealed about you and your sin, your need for a savior. Don't reject true enlightenment. God enables you by his grace to come to him. He will receive you into his family as one of his beloved children. Come to him this evening. Will you do that? Let's pray together. Father, you have sent the true light, Jesus Christ, into the world to shed light on all that is wrong in the world. And what is wrong in the world is us. Our wicked, dead, sinful, rebellious hearts. And Lord, when your son came, many rejected him, and that was what led to his death. But Lord, many received him. And I pray that everyone in this room has received him this evening. Because if they have then his blood covers them. They are children of God with a right to the title of child of God with a right to eternal life. Not because of anything that they have done, but because Christ has come and shed his blood for them. Lord, we thank you that salvation is all of you, that it is not of us, that even our very believing is a gift from you. We pray that we would leave here with assured and joyous hearts, knowing that you save us entirely out of your grace. And you leave nothing of it to us. Thank you that you don't let us ruin salvation, but that you keep us until the end. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. Keep us safe going home. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.